0: So we're going to talk today on the topic of love is not passive, and we're going to do it from the pulpit because such has been my recovery that finally, after a month, I have even turned to coffee instead of tea, and so I'm going to stay up here to maintain my strength uh, in the wake of my family's illness. But we're going to start today on this topic of love is not passive with starting out in a different way, which is we keep on talking about every week us exploring progressive Christian theology. And I think out of that vision statement we came up with in May, this is the phrase that confuses the most people. What is this thing we are talking about? What does it mean? Does it mean that we are progressive in worship, having different things going on all the time, having animals and clowns in the sanctuary? Does it mean we are progressive in that we are all Democrats? Does it mean something else? What does it mean? So I'm going to start today by looking at this passage because this passage gives us an example of different ways to understand the Bible. It gives us a way of different look at, a way to look at the the uh, words of the prophets and see how you might interpret it differently and why it is that someone might call themselves progressive instead of something else. Because back in the day, there was not progressive theology, there was not conservative theology. At least we didn't use those names. Uh, we used different names and used much more subtle. And in fact. Uh, more insulting words because most of the people who use these words knew a lot about religion, religious history, and theology, and therefore could make all these barbs that even I don't get um, as you read their commentaries. St. Cyril of Alexandria, if you are really into that, gets into this sort of thing. But what happened over the years was that we started to define ourselves. We started to move in different directions and try to find anchors. A lot of this comes from Protestantism generally when we say we're going to break away from the Catholic Church because we think there's a problem there and come over here. And once we do that, there's not the same kind of theological authority that you get in an institutional church like the Catholic Church. And you don't get the Pope, you don't get the various commissions saying what does theology mean? And so you get lots of different arguments. In the United States, this really came to a head in the late 19th century where um, in the wake of a number of different things, you have someone writing a pamphlet called The Fundamentals of Christian Religion. The Fundamentals. Where do we hear that kind of word elsewhere in our discourse in religion? Fundamentals. Well, very basic, that's right, and this is what became fundamentalism, like the fundamentals what this person thought were the fundamentals of Christian religion became the basis for fundamentalism. That these were the fundamentals that fundamentalism refers to. But note, this came about in the late 19th century. In the early part of the 19th century, and I forgot to warn you, this is going to be one of those sermons. In the early part of the 19th century there's a thing called liberal Christianity right and this is uh, where a lot of the UCC comes from there was this idea that uh, after the the, uh, various periods that were very stern after the Puritans were there trying to purify things trying to burn Quakers and banish Catholics and this sort of thing that maybe we needed a more open interpretation for instance of religion that maybe with a new uh, rational thinking that came about in the late uh, 18th century we could apply that to religion and find new ways to think about it (coughs) And so we did that, especially in New England. And this came to its head uh, in what was called Unitarianism, where people thought we're going to apply so much reason to religion that we no longer understand what Trinitarian religion is. We no longer believe that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus was a prophet and Jesus sort of brought the powers of God to bear, but maybe not all of those miracles and things. So liberal Christianity became Unitarianism and liberal Christianity. And so you have this as part of the Mew in the 19th century. So we have on one side, religion so rational that we give up Jesus. We have on the other side the fundamentals, which were basically an arbitrary set of 10 rules of how to interpret religion. So what do we do with this passage given these two extremes? If you are a fundamentalist, you look and say this allegory is very clear. How many of you look at this passage and say this allegory is very clear? Okay, so we're not strong on the fundamentalist side of things in this church. What you say is, look at these 10 bridesmaids who are foolish. These represent each one of us who fails to accept what it means to be a Christian in our hearts. And when the day of judgment comes, Jesus, the bridegroom, will shut the door on us. We'll be left out in the cold to burn or to suffer Whatever the depredations of the end times are for those who do not believe. I could preach that here every week. I don't. Shut door. This is what it means. It is very clear. We must accept Jesus to be saved. We must accept Jesus in this very clear way to be saved. We must live life according to these basic ten rules. To not suffer in the end times. That is what a conservative interpretation of this passage is. If you're a Unitarian, you might say, what a nice story about being ready, about helping other people. This is an interesting allegory for these people who had the oil but did not share it. How can they think there would not be enough to go around these these people? Why wouldn't they share it? Why wouldn't they all want to celebrate together or suffer together? Why is it that you would do this? And Jesus warns us not to be like the people either who forgot their oil or the people who shut the door. You might say that. You might say, look at all of our opportunities to help one another in our lifetime. Isn't that great? And that's a way to say Jesus was a great teacher. There are many ways to understand this. In progressive Christianity we don't go in the middle of that exactly, but we look at ways to tell the story such that Jesus is still the center of it. We all want to be in the banquet, right? We all want to be there with Jesus if Jesus returns and when Jesus returns. And so what we say is, what are the different ways to look at this such that we all get a chance to be in at the banquet? What is the way we can say this story tells us a story of love? What is the way that we can make this story speak to us and sing to us so that in our hearts we feel the love of Jesus and the desire to be with Jesus and to bring other people into that fold with us that Jesus is love. And so we say, no, this does not mean that when the times come, the door will be shut on us. What this means is that we will not always in our life have the chance to reach out to one another. We will not always in our lives have the chance to show kindness and mercy to one another. We will not always have in our lives the chance to preach, to praise, to worship, to be filled with the love of God in our lives. There will be a time when it is too late for us to make the connections in our life to feel Jesus in our midst, in our communion, to be in the presence of God. We will eventually run out of time. All of us live and die. All of us have only a limited number of days on this earth, as we remembered last week, and the week before, and the week before that, and today. So it's progressive, progressive Christian theology we say, what is the way we can take this lesson and help people know the love that is in our hearts because of the love Jesus had for us? How do we show other people this love and say, there is never going to be enough time to do all the things we want to do? How can we connect with one another today? Love is not passive. We do not sit here and love one another and do nothing because of it. Jesus' love for us demands action. The radical love that God showed to us in bringing Jesus to this world to live with us and die as us and show us the way out of death is an amazing story. This is not love that you sit and say, I love you and not mean it. This is the love you feel with your whole heart, the love that pushes you to go to youth group when your youth aren't there. This is the love that that pushes you to go mow the lawn when it's freezing outside. This is the love that pushes you to call the pastor even though other people are afraid of bothering him. This is the love that pushes you to reach out to one another and to remember one another. This is the love that says, God, I need help. I'm asking for help because it is too hard. God, send me the people that I need to change me in the way I need to be changed. This is the love that Jesus is showing us in this story. What victory is it for those bridesmaids in that wedding alone? What victory is it for them to say, go buy oil in the middle of the night? That is not the victory that Jesus calls us to. Jesus calls us to the victory of dancing in joy, of drinking the wine, of hearing the music, of celebrating as we have never celebrated before. And that celebration is for all people. And so what Jesus calls us to in this passage is finding ways to keep the lamps lit finding ways to multiply that oil so that it lights the path for all people. And that is what we do here. What is that small act someone else does for you that keeps you going? What is that act you do for someone else that makes you not feel the burden of service but the joy of connection? That is what this passage is about. Lighting the path keeping the doors open as long as you can because we never know when time will run out for us.